0: Welcome to the Jongets Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent Good Games vlog that I've recorded live. Now, this is an edited version, and in it, I will be discussing my initial impressions for Card Rails, Mini Rails, Reign of Witches, and the Toledo War. As always, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. If you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this, then I do hope that you would consider directly supporting the campaign, and you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash jongetsgames. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. All right. The first game I'll be talking about today is Card Rails. Uh, Now, this one came out in 2021, so, you know, just uh, earlier on this year. And this is a game that has been up on Kickstarter technically twice, and uh, both times it was self-published by Travis Hill, who's also the designer of this game. Now, uh, I vaguely remember when the first Kickstarter campaign went out uh, because um, I was already uh, following Travis on Twitter because we met a few years ago, and he's a really great guy. And um, I remember thinking, ah, I don't really care about trains or cubes or stocks or anything like that, so I ignored it entirely because that was before I had my Cube Rails Awakening. And then once I finally realized I like these games, I got super jealous of everybody who seemed to have these copies from the first Kickstarter. Uh, So actually, I guess technically it didn't do Kickstarters. The second one was a pre-order, and I was able to jump on that and pick up a copy of it. In fact, I have it right over here. I just wanted to show you how tiny this little box is, but um, this is a Cube Rails game um, in a little box, and obviously it's called Card Rails, which means there are some cards. And so with that in mind let's actually talk about the game a little bit more. Uh, Now, the way this game works is like many Cube Rails-style games. You have a variety of different train companies that nobody is in direct control of, and over the course of the game, you're going to be taking cubes as stocks, and then the majority of this game is about card play. The game is called Card Rails, after all. Uh, At the start of the game, uh, I've only played this once. It was a four-player game. At the start of a four-player game, you get, I believe it was, 11 cards in your hand, and every single turn, you have to spend one of your cards to do something, and once you have just three cards left in your hand, then the game is over, and then you will score up to see who did the best. So in the four-player game, everybody took eight turns, and I think it's slightly different with different player counts, but it's it's pretty similar to that. Now, um, the way this works is when you uh, take your turn, you use one of these cards, you can discard it to a face-down pile in order to take any one of these cubes, and that cube is going to be a stock in the company. Uh, so for example, uh, if I have a black and a gray cube in front of me, then that means I have one black and one gray um, stock uh, for those companies. And as the end of the game, each of those stocks will pay out a value equal to how good that train company is doing out here on the map. And uh, as you can see, the map is made up of cards that look just like the cards that we have in our hand, because um, the other main thing that you're doing on your turn, instead of taking a stock cube, is you actually play a card in order to lay track down as cubes for those different companies. Now, if you ever lay track down onto a half hex on one of these cards, you actually have to take the card that you played and put it face up on the table to build out the map. So by placing on the edges of cards you actually expand the map that everyone is able to play on now as you put these down there are a variety of different little locations there are purple spots which increase the value of that train line there are also uh, actual symbols on the board like triangles and circles and those symbols match up with the symbols of the different companies and if you put a cube down which is track for that matching company then that adds five to the overall value of that company now once the game is over, like I said, you're going to have three cards left in your hand, and every single card has a single one of those icons on it, and those cards will become stocks. Now, as you're playing the game, you can only have at most three cubes in front of you, so what that means is, hypothetically, you should end the game with six stocks. Three of them are going to be the cards that you have left in your hand, and three are going to be the cubes that you hypothetically picked up throughout the game. Um, I'm not sure if there is a good strategy that involves not picking up three stock cubes. (laughs) I've only played this game once, but it seems like stocks are good because that's where you get your money, which is your points. Um, Uh, Now, this is really interesting right off the bat, because at the beginning of the game, you have your 11 cards in your hand, and you can kind of sort them by the different um, stock symbols that are on there, and you have this push and pull, where you're like, okay, I've got, you know, four cards of a specific train, you want to play those down so that they have the symbols, so you can put the cube down to match that up, to add five to the revenue, but then you're playing that card, so you can't use that card as stock. Now, you can only use three of your cards at the end of the game for stock, so that's fine. Most of your cards can be spent doing other things, but that's definitely something you have to keep in mind. For example, in this game where I came dead last, (laughs) it's worth noting, um, I began with, I think, four or five of the rusting stock, which is the black uh, company. And I remember thinking, okay, cool, I'm going to go hard on the black company. I'm going to place a couple of those cards down with the symbol. I'm going to match the trains up. It'll be great. But what I failed to take into account, because this is my first play, is the fact that I had I think four of those cards and there are nine in the entire deck. So that means there are five other cards uh, spread out amongst all of my uh, opponents, and I think there's one card that it could have been uh, that one type. And what I realized pretty early on is I was pushing hard on the Black Train Company, and nobody else was. They were all going hard on gray as well as the brown. And I had a couple of those cards in my hand, but not a lot. And this is a shared incentive style game, and I think I got so focused on the idea That, like, I was going to make the black train great. That um, it took me too long to realize that nobody else cared about the black train. So I put a ton of effort uh, adding a bunch of these cubes for the black train um, to get it up to a decent uh, revenue amount, but nobody else was really tagging on. And at the end of the game, I had, I think, one black cube and I had a couple of black cards in my hand. Um, I didn't go crazy on the black cubes because it seemed like other people were going hard on the gray and the brown lines. And so I had, I think, I ended with a gray, a black, and a brown cube. But when the, when the dust settled, my opponents who had a bunch of cards for the better trains, well, they won. And, and you know, that makes sense. This is a Cube Rail-style game where it's shared incentives and you want to actually, you know, have the best stock in the best companies, and you're trying to figure out what that's going to be throughout the game. And honestly, we were stumbling around like it was our first play of this game. And I think on my first turn, I bought stock, and in retrospect, it's probably a bad idea. I, I start right off the bat, played one card, took a black stock, and everyone's like, "Okay, well, John seems to care about black stock, and I don't." So they did their other things, and I think right off the bat, it was that was a bad idea. <laughs> but I, I am looking forward to playing this one more because, um, well, I had a lot of fun with it. This one plays three to five players. Like I said, this was a four-player game, and even though it was my first time teaching it, it took Oh, I don't know, five, eight, nine minutes, something like that. Uh, so, not a very long time. And then the actual gameplay took certainly less than an hour, probably like 40, 45 minutes, something like that. And everyone was really vested in it. Like, it was a really fascinating experience trying to navigate what you were going to do. And, like, a lot of cube rail style games and shared incentive style games don't have hidden information. Um, you, You usually see all of the stocks everybody has, and you kind of know what they're playing off. But obviously in this game, at the end of the game, three of your cards, which you haven't revealed to anybody, are going to be stocks. So you also have to kind of feel out what your opponents are going to be doing. Like, okay, if this one person's pushing gray a bunch, well, they probably have at least a couple of gray cards in their hand, and they're hoping to score that at the end of the game. Uh, Now, one thing I didn't mention is the fact that, you know, obviously these cubes are track, and they are also stocks, and there's only 12 of each cube on these cards. So that means you can also dry out the supply of these cubes to the point where other people can't join in on your really um, uh, lucrative company. But it also means if you take these out too quickly, then people can't join in and. share in that incentive to then push that company to do well. Uh, Now, like I said, in this game, I came dead last and uh, honestly, I still had a really great time. I I could tell the mistakes I was making. And one big mistake that I made had to do with these swap card spots out here. Uh, The red locations, when you place any cube down onto them as you're building track, you actually look at the discard pile of cards that everybody has played and you take one of those cards and you must take a card from your hand and put it into the discard pile, so you're swapping. And I I think when this game was the third person to do a swap, and even by that point, there was nothing really good for me in this deck. Uh, I know that on one of my first actions, I think I had one brown stock in my hand, and I remember thinking, ah, I'm going to be focusing on the black train, so I discarded a brown stock card to do something, maybe even to take this black stock cube, and then suddenly people were pushing brown hard. In fact, at the end of this game, this is a a photo from the middle of the game, at the end of this game, brown was easily the most lucrative of the companies, and by the time I did a swap action to go into that discard pile to try and find that brown stock that I had given up to do an action, it was long gone. (laughs) And I think I was like, oh, okay. So as soon as you feel the wind shifting, Maybe you want to try to get one of these swap cards down to actually lay track out in order to utilize that to pick up a card that you might have, um, you know, erroneously gotten rid of. Well, maybe not erroneous because, of course, at the start of the game, nobody really knows anything about what anybody else is doing. So you're trying to feel it out. As people are going and so I don't think it was necessarily a mistake to get rid of that uh, but it was probably a mistake to sleep on picking it back up again because of course my opponents got in there and by that point Brown was doing great as well and they could see it and um, they took those cards and uh, that's I think a big part of why I lost Uh, now again I've been super impressed with this game it's it really packs a lot of punch for a tiny little package Uh, now I mentioned that there was a a Kickstarter for this and then a pre-order campaign for it and these were all um, done by the uh, designer of this game. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, he bought all the cubes and self-sorted them and uh, tucked them into these little boxes with all of the cards. And right now, you can't actually order a physical copy of this, but you can buy a print-and-play copy of it on, uh, I think it's called PNP Arcade. Um, When I end up putting this video out in an edited version, I'll put a link down below so that people can find that if they want. Um, I looked at it just an hour or two ago, and it said $7 to buy the print-and-play version that you can then print out and, you know, make your own version of this game. And I just. I'm really impressed with it. I mean, for such a tiny little spot on the shelf, it's a really interesting experience. And this is the first Cube Rails style game that I played where the map is um, built out by the player decisions. Uh, one reason why I love Cube Rails games is because. A, you're playing the game, and I like playing games, but B, I love to spectate the game while I am playing. I think it's fun to just see how things evolve over time. Um, And usually in Cube Rails games, that involves how the different tracks are gonna be going out onto a map that already exists. But for this one, the map actually gets built out as players are putting these cubes out as well, so there's an extra level of interest with how is the map gonna build out? Like, which direction is it gonna go? Are we gonna have walls of lakes that are gonna stop various cubes from going down? Uh, I just love to participate in these experiences while also, of course, trying to win. Uh, I will say that um, the scores, I think the winning score is like 198 or something like that. And so I did bring my set of uh, iron clay uh, money tokens, and I brought those out for final scoring so that it was easy for everybody to just take their revenue and tokens and then count it up because uh, it seemed like without doing that, you're certainly going to need calculators. And of course, you know, most people have calculators on their phone, so that's not not, uh, not really a big deal. Uh, but yeah, that is card Rails. I'm super impressed with it, and I'm really looking forward to playing this one more. Brian says, tiny games rule. Always fun to see how much game can be packed into a tiny box. Yeah, I mean, the shelf space is is a significant factor uh, in how much uh, and how long I'm going to be keeping a game. Um, If I have a good game that is in a big box, it's probably going to be leaving my collection a lot sooner than a good game in a small box. And if you have a potentially great game in a small box, well, you know, I don't really see myself ever getting rid of this. It's so tiny, like it's never going to be occupying a spot on my shelf that something else could desperately need. Uh, Again, I've only played this game once, so I I don't know if it's a great game yet, but uh, my initial impressions are super positive, and everyone I played this with was really digging it as well. Uh, It was certainly one of those experiences where people kept being like, oh, okay, oh, all right, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, just those moments of kind of discovery of, like, how they should have maybe played things differently and playing off of different people was uh, just fascinating to see. Uh, And uh, that definitely worked with this one. Um, Chris asked, what player count did I play at? Uh, this was a four player game. Um, like most cube rails games, this one plays three players to five. And I usually, I <laughs> really try to play these shared incentive cube Rail style games with at least four players. Um, in fact, I'm getting close to the point of just not even bothering playing these games at three players f- for most of them. Um, because I don't know, it seems like, the interestingness of the shared incentive gets a lot better with more players. And I'm actually going to talk about this a little bit more in the next game, which is Mini Rails. Uh, I will say the uh, only Cube Rails game that I played at 3 that I thought was really fun, like a great time at 3, was Trans-Siberian Railroad. Um, I played a really cutthroat great game of that one a couple of months ago, so I would not turn down playing that one at 3, but most of the other ones, um, I don't know if turning down is the right thing, but I might reach for something else like a Euro or or you know Thailand game or something else instead of one of these Cube Rails Games uh, at the three player count. Um, this one might be great at three. I, I don't really have uh, uh, an experience with it. And I, I don't think, like, if people wanted to try this, I, I wouldn't say no, especially considering this one in particular is so quick to play. You know, in a four player game, you only take eight turns. Uh, and again, it's a little different with the different player counts. But um, yeah, that's kind of where I stand usually with these games at this point. Okay, let's now move on to the next game, which is also a cube rail style game. Uh, I've had these on my mind for a while now, although it's been a couple of months since I've played many of these, but last night I went to a game night with just (laughs) a bunch of these in my uh, bag, and so I was uh, fortunate to be able to play this one. I was with a group of three other people who were um, down to play whatever I was bringing out of the bag. So, Mini Rails is a game that was technically published in 2017, so this one came out a little while ago, and this is another game on that list of games that I heard great things about and had zero interest in trying, you know, a couple of years ago because I just assumed it would be a game that I wouldn't like. Um, so now that I'm actually interested in these type, type of games, I looked into it a little bit more. I read the rules and I was like, wow, this game looks really interesting. In fact, I played this last night for the second time. The first time I played this was, man, about four months ago. It was quite a while ago. I played it on Tabletop Simulator and I played it at three players. And... um It was fine at three players, but there were some things that that I didn't love about it, but I enjoyed that so much that I actually went onto the Board Game Geek Marketplace and bought a copy of it because I knew I would really like it at higher player counts. And I've had a couple of opportunities to try it at three since then, but I declined to do that. And last night, I was finally able to try this one at four. So with that in mind, let's talk about the game uh, a little bit. Um, So in the middle of the table, you have a modular board. You have these sets of different little hex icons that are kind of built into a single tile. And you always put this one in the middle, but you can rotate it and flip it over. And then the rest of these, you also flip and rotate randomly and put around. And then this version of the game has this nice border that snaps around the outside to kind of lock it all in to a board. There are a couple of versions of this game, and I went out of my way to get this one, which is, I believe, the Tasty Minstrel version, mostly because I liked that... um, border that snaps around the outside to kind of lock everything in. And, and I, I like the uh, artistic aesthetic of it. The aesthetic of the other ones looked fine as well. I just like the border. Anyway, in this game, you are always going to have six different rail companies, and um, those start around the edges of the map. Um, there's a single disc to show the starting location for all of those, and the way this game works is every player has two action pawns that are going to be placed onto this action track over here. Uh, now, next to that action track is another track, and you are going to put out a number of little color discs randomly pulled out of a bag equal to the number of action pawns plus one. You'll put these out randomly, and then starting at the left of the action pawn track, uh, Each player whose pawn is there gets to take their turn. So you're going to work from one side to the other, and when you take your turn, you just take that pawn and you place it onto the uh, token track with the random different tokens for the different companies, and you will then take the token on the spot you took and then do one of two things with it. Uh, Now, within each round, you have two pawns, and one of those is going to have to take a disc for stock, and the other one is going to take a disc for building it onto the track. If your first action takes stock, then your second action will be building, and vice versa, if your first action is building, your second action will be taking stock. Stock. Now, when you take a disc for stock, you simply place it onto your own personal board on the zero spot. And a really interesting thing about mini rails is unlike most other stock games that I've played, each individual token is a stock and each individual token has different values. So it's not like, oh, every um, blue token is worth X. In this game, the blue tokens vary based off where they are. Um, uh, So, for example, actually, that isn't a good example with this image, but um, with the uh, gray tokens, um, I Uh, in the bottom left over here had a gray token that had fallen down onto the negative one, so that means that one token is currently worth negative one points to me at the end of the game, potentially. Uh, But another opponent has a gray token on the negative three spot, so that means their uh, gray token is actually worth less than mine, so um, they are going to fluctuate. Now, when you take a token to build a track, you simply put it down onto the board adjacent to a previously placed disc, and if you put it onto a spot with uh, little white pips, then that is going to increase the stock value of all stocks of that matching color. So if somebody was to put a gray disc down onto a spot with two red pips, then every gray stock is going to go down two times. Uh, now, again, uh, during the uh, each of the game's six rounds, you take two actions, so by the end of the game, you are going to have six stocks, and you will have built six track out here on the board. Now I mentioned that um, there's one more disc than the number of players, uh, than two times the number of players, sorry. So that means once everyone has taken their two actions, there will be one disc left over on this track. Now that disc is going to go down onto the taxation track, which has six spots for the six rounds of the game. And this is a really crucial and fascinating part of the game because when the game is over, uh, all players are going to score positive points for their discs in the positive area If there is a matching token on the taxation spot, that means, um, in this example, right now I have a blue token on the plus four spot, but there are no blue tokens in the taxation area, which means I am not allowed to score positive points for blue at this point if i want to score these points for blue then a blue token needs to go down over here and again a token only goes down over there if nobody chose that token throughout the round so everyone has a chance to essentially manipulate what tokens are going to be placed on this row now likewise at the end of the game if there are no tokens on this row of a color and you have a negative point for it then you will actually score Those negative points, which is bad. So essentially, if you have tokens in the positive area, you want the token to be on the uh, taxation track. And if you have tokens in the negative area, then um, you also, I guess, want the tokens to be on that track because you only score negative if those tokens aren't there. Now, this is a really elegant little system that is incredibly hard to actually describe. It would not surprise me if that didn't fully make sense, and <laughs> I apologize. Uh, essentially, sometimes you care about the discs being here um, if, if uh, based off of where these things are, and you might have a token deep in the negative, and in that case, you want to put a token out here so that your negative seven yellow uh, track is going to be worth zero to you because, obviously, that would be essentially a net gain of seven victory points to you because at the end of the game, you score the positive points and you score the negative points, and then whoever has the most points wins. So unlike, again, many of these cube rail style games, you have this fascinating experience where your individual tokens um, might, uh, well, first of all, have different uh, values, and you know, they might look like they have a big negative, but it might not actually matter. Uh, For example, um, in this example right here, there's a gray token on the taxation row, and I currently have a gray token in the minus one spot. That means this gray token is actually worth zero. Because there's a token on the taxation row, only positive points for gray will happen. So that means if we keep playing and somebody puts a token on the minus two spot for the gray and the token goes down a couple times, I don't, actually care? I mean, I'd like to get that into the positive to score positive points for it, but I'm not losing even more points. And in this game, we had a situation where two of the players um, went in for the yellow stock, and then the other two of us players kept intentionally building yellow onto awful spots, which shoved their tokens farther and farther into the negative. And um, even at one point late in the game, one of the two of us um, took a yellow stock as a stock, because they kind of had to in that moment, onto the zero spot, um, knowing that the yellow wasn't going to be building out anymore, but they specifically took it so that yellow would not be placed on this track, because if yellow isn't on the track at the end of the game, then the negative points score as negative. So that means This game can be pretty mean. (laughs) You know, obviously, by denying yellow going down to that spot, we were forcing our opponents to suffer the negative points that we had already forced upon them by building their yellow track inefficiently. And again, by building the yellow track, we made it harder for yellow to go down onto this taxation row. So there is a um, a push and pull as the game goes on, um, trying to, you know, obviously leverage how these tokens go down. Uh, for example, I took my first red stock after the red uh, token had been placed on this row. So I knew no matter what, that token would be worth zero or positive points. And I was able to actually work the red stock to go even higher throughout the game. Uh, but of course, if somebody was to ab- uh, to get in there earlier when red maybe goes onto the negatives, then that could be a problem. So man, this game is a real tongue twister to try and describe, but it is in my opinion, a fascinating experience. And I will say that as hard as that was to describe, it was also equally hard for some of my opponents to figure out. Like, I feel like I had to describe how these tokens scored a positive and a negative a couple times throughout the game, and there was uh, at least one person who, even by the very end, was just like, I... Still struggling to figure out how this all pieces together. And I think that is uh, pretty valid because even though I think these systems are brilliant, um, it, it is definitely strange, and, and I enjoy strangeness in games. Uh, now, one thing I adore about this game is the action track, and um, that might seem familiar to some people who uh, have played a bunch of Euros. In particular, uh, Stafford Dynasty by Andreas Stetting uses a very similar action track, and I think that uh, I'd love to see this kind of thing in more games because when you put these tokens down, I forgot to mention it, um, at the end of the round, you then seed the other row with new tokens from the bag, and then you start with the previous row's tokens, and you work from the left to the right. That means if you take a token farther to the, farther to the left, then your action token will activate early in the next round. And if you go farther to the right, it will activate later. And there are uh, certainly reasons to go early and late. In fact, at one point in the middle of the game, I intentionally put my position down, uh, my pawn down into a spot so that I would go last in the next round. Because when you go last, you're going to pick from only two discs left over here. But importantly, the disc that you don't take will go down to the taxation row. So that is a potentially very strong position to be in, especially going into the sixth round of the game. So taking the uh, final spot, uh, during the fifth round is huge because the sixth round is the final one and the last person to take an action will dictate which of the final two tokens will go down. And I think more often than not, that's going to be an interesting decision. I guess sometimes it might not be based off of how these different tokens lay out. Now, I mentioned earlier that the first time I played this game, it was at threes uh, or at three players and uh, that it wasn't as good as I was hoping. And I think part of that is because when you play a three-player game, each of these companies actually start with um, more of their tokens on the board, whereas in a four- or five-player game, there's just this single token out here on the side of the board. So it seemed like having these companies start with a bunch of tokens out here already um, really opened up a lot of flexibility, which is fine, but I don't know. I just I had this feeling, um, playing it, three players with just two other opponents, that the way things interacted as we were you know, figuring Bring out our shared incentives. Like, it was fine. I didn't dislike the experience. Obviously, after playing it at three, I went out and bought a copy of it. But um, again, since then, I've not really been pushing to play it with more. Uh, Now, after playing it at four, I feel like I would really like to play this one at five. Um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily going to be better, but I do think that the map is going to be built out even more, and I think this kind of game just does well with extra chaos, (laughs) essentially, from even more people uh, uh, having even more of these shared incentives spread out all over the place. I would certainly not shy away from playing this one at five, even though it is a situation that's, you know, hard to control. There's a lot of, um, well, there's there's usually going to be bad things that can happen to railroads that you care about. There's enough of these little red negative spots out here that um, things can definitely be precarious. Uh, when I first invested in gray at the start of the game, it was only adjacent to some white pips, but after even uh, two tokens were placed down, it was suddenly next to some red ones. You can't quite see it, but that one was a penalty one, and that's next to another penalty one, which is next to another penalty one. So even railroad companies that... Seem to start off with a bunch of positive stuff near them, can very quickly find themselves in a situation where, if somebody wants to, they could slam the stock down um, by one, two, or three, often two or three being an option. Uh, I know that there was one moment late in the game where I built Blue Track, and everyone had one blue stock, so we all kind of didn't really care about the difference, and I had to lay a blue track down for reasons, and I could have put the blue track down onto a negative three spot, Um, but again, we all had one blue stock, so it would uh, hit all of us the same, so instead I put it down onto a positive two spot or something like that, again, no real impact because we were all equally in there, but that left the negative three spot open, which happened to be adjacent to yellow, and (laughs) spoiler alert, later on in the game, uh, the other person not in yellow slammed a yellow track down there, shoving the yellow stock down three more times, which was pretty bad for the people who had invested in yellow. And of course, I left the door open for that play by intentionally not going on that spot. And that was the reason I did it. I was like, I don't want to cover this up because I want that to be, you know, Uh, worse for some other people at the end of the game. Now, I actually won this game by, I think, a point or two. I had a score of 11. So, unlike card rails, where, like, you could lose with a score of 140 like I did, uh, in this game, you could win with just 11 points. Um, There was a lot of negative scoring for some of my opponents, and uh, not for me. I was able to uh, work it out so that all of my points were positive at the end of the game, so that felt good. But I don't necessarily feel like I won because I was a genius at mini rails. Uh, I feel like I just played it well and was able to make some smart decisions, and And I ended up on top. Um, I do remember at one point in this game, actually, it was this game or card rails. I can't remember which. uh, One of my opponents uh, who hasn't played very many of this style game, the cube rails shared incentive type game, they said, wow, I kind of feel like maybe I'm king making right here. And and I thought that was an interesting um, uh, thing to say because... Yeah, I mean, almost everything you do in these shared incentive games is going to have an effect that will help certain people and hurt other people. And generally, you try to do the things that help you more than it hurts other people. But you can certainly find yourself in situations where it seems like you're maybe dictating who is going to win and you try to parse which of these things I think is going to be better for you. It's just a thing that exists But since uh, in these kind of shared incentive situations. But it rarely seems like, oh, you're going to like, king make one specific person or the other. Like It seems like you often have opportunities to um, potentially help multiple people, and obviously in that situation, you probably want to help the people who you think are not your competition. In fact, as we were playing this game, I kept skunking on yellow a decent bit, and there was a moment, I think in the fifth round, where I realized, okay, <laughs> yellow's been beaten down to this point, I think we can stop it from going down here, so the people with yellow are not my competition, it's the other person who does not have yellow who is my competition, and then um, I stopped really beating up on yellow as much, and I started trying to find ways to work my way and to get tiny incremental advantages on that opponent, and I actually ended up doing that at one point later on in the game by lowering a stock that we were both in, but um, that was uh, still uh, they had, I think, two of that stock versus one of mine, so I was able to work it so that that worked out for them, and I don't really need to go into the minutia, but it was fascinating trying to get into those kind of details. So yeah, that is Mini Rails. It's been out for I guess technically four years, a couple of different editions of it, and I am uh, quite happy to have a copy of this. It's not a gigantic box. It's definitely smaller than a ticket-to-ride style box, but it's still a decent-sized box on your shelf. But uh, for the moment, I'm uh, very happy to have a copy of it. I think it's a beautiful-looking game. I think it has some fascinating mechanics and fascinating decisions, and I'm looking forward to playing this one more, specifically at four and five players. I'd really, really like to try this one at five. Looking at the uh, chat here, Brian says, Mini Rails? More like Meany Rails. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) this is definitely a game where you have to be fine taking actions that are going to be potentially devastating to your opponents. But from what I've noticed, many Cube Rails games have that in them. And, you know, I've said this a hundred times, but the reason I am okay with that meanness and why I actually quite enjoy it is because these games are usually under an hour. So they can be really cutthroat, they can be really mean, and, you know, it's a relatively short experience, and if you find yourself at the bottom end of the rope not really being able to be competitive, well, at least the game is probably going to be coming to an end pretty soon. All right, let's now move on to the next game, which is not a Cube Rails game. Uh, this one is Reign of Witches. Uh, so this one is a 2020 release. And uh, technically, this game was designed and published as a freebie. Uh, so this was published by Hollandspiel, uh, designed by Amabel Holland. And... Um, To the best of my understanding, every single year near Christmas, they have a Holland Days sale, where if you buy at least two games from their website, then they give you a new free game, and that's usually the only way you can get this free game. Uh, Now... Reign of Witches was the free game that you got by buying two or more of their other games uh, in 2020. And I first started hearing about this game a few months ago. Um, I think once enough people who backed, or not backed, who ordered from Hall and Spiel and started getting those copies and started playing it, people, I kept hearing more and more like, oh, wow, Reign of Witches is really good. Oh, have you heard of this Reign of Witches game? And by the time I did, I looked into it and realized that, you know, you can't actually. You could not actually buy the game, and I was a little bummed about that. In fact, I saw some things of uh, people spending way too much money for this. Uh, so what ended up happening was a couple months ago, I saw a blog post uh, written by Amabel Holland saying that um, she had decided to actually republish *Reign of Witches* and the Toledo War, which I will be talking about very soon, um, as a new product because essentially, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it seemed like. The hype for this game was there, and people were spending way too much money for it on the aftermarket. Uh, so it's my understanding that um, part of the proceeds that you can uh, do for purchasing this game now go to a um, uh, fundraising uh, donation. Uh, you can definitely learn about that more <laughs> by going to the website for it. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about the game itself, because I did buy the uh, double pack of this one, uh, Reign of Witches and The Toledo War, once that was available. And at this point, I played Reign of Witches three times. Now, uh, this is a two-player only game, and uh, BGG says it takes about 20 minutes to play, and in my experience, that's pretty solid. Yeah, 20, 25 minutes or something like that. Uh, Last Friday, I was able to play two games of this back-to-back with a friend of mine, and then last night, when... Everybody else left after we uh, finished playing mini rails. So it was just me and one other person. I said, "Hey, you want to play another game?" <laughs> so I brought it out. And uh, this is also a tiny game. Uh, normally I don't have these uh, over here, but uh, three out of the four games I'm talking about today are really small, and I just kind of wanted to highlight how much game can come in time in, in tiny packages. Because this right here is uh, Reign of Witches and the Toledo War inside this one little uh, pouch. Uh, so as you can see, I have some tokens in here, and I do want to mention that when you buy this game, you just get the cards. Uh, You have to add your own tokens, but in this case, I just pulled some little quill tokens from a prototype game that I had lying around. I think I read somewhere that um, nickels work really well. Um, Oh, actually, before I move on, Amabel Holland is here in the chat, and she said the majority of the proceeds for Reign of Witches slash The Toledo War uh, go to the Morris Animal Foundation. So um, there we go. More information. Thank you so much, Amabel. Uh, uh, So coming back to Reign of Witches, this game has... I believe, 23 cards in it, and um, the way it works is one player is thematically playing as Hamilton, and the other person is playing as Adams, and in this game, you're going to start with a couple of cards in your hand, there's a card row in the middle of the table, and on your turn, you simply take one action from three options. The first option is you can buy a card from the middle of the table. When you do that, if it's farthest to the end, then you take it for free, and if you want to take any of the other cards, you have to put these little tokens down onto every card that you skip. So if you want to take the fourth card, you have to put three of these little tokens down, and these tokens are precious. <laughs> you definitely don't want to get rid of these too often. So you can buy a card into your hand, and that's your entire turn. Uh, the other, uh, the next thing that you can do is actually play a card from your hand down into a tableau in front of you. Now, many of the cards, in fact, I think most of the cards have a little discard icon in the top corner, which means when you play that card down, you have to discard another card from your hand into a discard pile to pay for it. So you essentially play one card, get rid of another card. Uh, but some of them don't actually have that, and. Putting the card down will be your whole turn, and the last thing that you can do is actually activate one of the cards that you have in front of you by paying one of your coins, and you place it on top of the card to then gain the effect that shows up on the bottom part of the card. So that's the reason I said these coins are important, because you not only want them to buy the right cards or the best cards for you from the market, but you also want them to activate these great abilities that show up on all of these cards. Now, you only can have three cards in your hand at any point in time unless you have something that uh, changes that. So that means if you um, spend your first turn buying a card, you now have three in your hand. The next turn, you're going to be forced to play a card down. And then once you have these cards down, you have the next option of actually putting coins on top. Now, a really interesting thing about this game is that it is essentially an open information game. The only bit of randomness, or I guess hidden information, is what your first two cards are at the beginning of the game. The reason for that is because as you are playing the game, you spend your whole turn to buy a card, and then your opponent knows hypothetically what card you just took. Also, if you want to play a card down while well, you spend your whole turn doing that, and now your opponent can see the card that's in front of you, and then if you want to activate that card, it's going to be an extra turn. Now, many of these cards let you actually discard cards from your opponent's tableau, and this is where it gets really interesting because, again, you can see the options that your opponent has. If you see your opponent take a card from this row that has an ability that lets them discard all of the diamonds or something like that from your opponent's area or all the unprotected diamonds, um, then you can know in the back of your head, you're like, okay, they are probably going to want to play that card or they might want to play that card to then discard all of my unprotected diamonds. Now, a card is protected when there's a coin on it. If you put a coin down, then nobody can mess with it. But if there is no coin, then it's not. So what that means is you have uh, moments where somebody might take a powerful card from the row, and then you might have a card in your hand that will discard a card. So then you play it out in front of you and you say, okay, and then they can see that. So now they're scared to maybe put the card, the powerful card they just took, because they know that you could take a coin and smash it onto a card that you've already revealed to them to then get rid of their card. In fact, in the game that we played last night, a similar thing to this happened, where uh, one of my opponents took Aaron Burr, which is a card where, when activated, uh, they will actually go to your opponent's area and halve the amount of dam- diamonds they have if they have the most diamonds, and I was looking like I was going to have a bunch of diamonds in that game, so I had a card in my hand that could discard another card, so I put that down in front of me, and my opponent was worried, so then they played a couple other—they played a different card, which seemed powerful, and he, I remember he looked at me, and he's like, do you want to discard that one? And he was essentially trying to bait me um, to use my power, because once you put a coin on these, that's it. You only get to do it once. He was trying to bait me into using my discard power on the new card that he played while he was potentially holding a different card in his hand that he probably wanted more. And I remember I said, no, no, I'll wait for, and I waited for them to play a different card out. It didn't actually end up being Aaron Burr, but I actually decided it was worth my time to spend a coin to get rid of that other card. And then Aaron Burr ended up showing up and, you know, it's just this interesting uh, dynamic between the players of just knowing what they know and trying to counterplay from these different situations. Again, You do start the game with two random cards in your hand. So there will uh, oftentimes be moments where somebody puts a card down and you're like, oh, no, what? You could do that? But again, actually, I say again, I I haven't actually described how you win this game, and I should probably do that right now. Um, These cards, when you play them down by themselves, all they are is value, the value in the top left corner. These special, fancy, cool effects on the bottom only get activated when you spend a turn putting a coin down. And the game is going to end At a certain point, I'll talk about events in a minute, but when the game is over, you are going to check three different competitions. The first is who has the most hearts in front of them, and those hearts will show up on the cards that they have in front of them, as well as potentially from effects from coins being placed down. Uh, This example over here, if you put a coin on the USS Constellation, um, a cool effect happens, and that's going to be plus one diamond and plus one heart. So that means the U.S. Constellation will be two spades, a diamond, and a heart, when you put a coin down onto it, if you don't put a coin, then it's just two spades as long, of course, as you play it out in front of you. Now, the person with the most hearts is going to win hearts. The person with the most diamonds will win diamonds, and you just kind of remember who won these things. And then um, lastly, you add up all of the spades and the clubs into one fight, essentially for military power. They're both military. But the Atoms player is going to, get, uh, going to be able to double all of their spades. I guess they're better at navy, and spades are thematically navy. In my head, the spades kind of look like ships cutting through the water. So I'm like, okay, Adams is the Navy, Navy is the Spades. And then Hamilton will double all of their clubs. So that's another thing to keep in mind. And the person with the most of that is going to win that one. So uh, what happens at this point is if one of the players won two out of those three competitions, then they have the chance of winning the game, which is, (laughs) I love teaching that moment because that's the moment where my, my opponent goes, what the chance of winning? Because uh, first of all, if you know you tie, then nobody wins it. So it's possible you both just lose if neither of you get uh, win two out of the three, and then the person who won two out of the three will count up all of their power, essentially the the hearts, the spades, the clubs, and the diamonds, and they add up all of that power, and they compare it against Jefferson. And I know I haven't talked about Jefferson just yet, but Jefferson is a sneaky non-player character who is going to be building up power throughout the game with the use of these events. Now, in the deck of cards, there are four of these events, and they come out at various times. And when they are activated by somebody taking them from the row or when they slide to the bottom and somebody doesn't take them, they become active. And first of all, they have an effect. uh, Like, one might give a coin to the player with the most diamonds. Another one will actually reshuffle the discard pile into the main deck, which will make the game go a little bit longer. So, instead of a 15-minute game, now maybe it's a 20- Four minute game. Like it doesn't drastically increase the game length. Um, And every single one of these will add rank. Uh, For example, this one right here shows a little three rank. And at the end of the game, you add up all of the rank of all of the events that happened. And that is Jefferson's power. And if you won two out of these three um, contests and the sum total of all of your stuff is greater than Jefferson or equal to greater, crap, I can't remember. Uh, One of those two, (laughs) Um, then you win the game. And if it's not, then you actually still lose. So it's possible that you might be fighting with your opponent and win two out of these three, but you're overall so weak that you can't defeat Jefferson, and you still both lose. Um, Now, I've played this game three times, and I'm not sure if I'm just good at this game or if I just got lucky or if my opponents weren't good, but I've actually won all three of these games. Uh, uh, One of them was super close to uh, Jefferson's overall score. Um, Now, the way this game ends is when the last card is dealt out of the deck, then that just ends the game, and the last card in the deck at the part of, as part of setup is a card, an event, that actually ends the game, and it can be shuffled in due to other events. And when I played last night, um, based off of the way these all were shuffled up, all the events were, essentially, all the events were near the end of the shuffle, so only one event squeaked out. So Jefferson only had a rank of four, but in the game previous to that that I played, I think Jefferson had a power of, like, 12 or 14 or something like that, but I happen to have a really big tableau going with some of these special effects that I was able to make happen. So, I've just talked about this game a lot. Uh, (laughs) To recenter my thoughts, um, i played this game three times, and I think it is a fascinating experience. Um, I think there is definitely a benefit to knowing the game and knowing the cards. Uh, I think I was, you know, certainly in a good position to win last night against a person who I hadn't played before, and I had played it twice. Uh, But, I also think this game is really just about reading the card options and knowing the card options and the flow that happens. In the game that I played last night, there was very little discarding of cards. Um, In the second game that I played last Friday, there was a ton of discarding of cards. And, of course, if you are discarding cards back and forth, you are, you know, Giving yourself an advantage over your opponent, but the more cards that are discarded, the less likely you are to actually defeat Jefferson, and ultimately, if you want to win the game, you do have to defeat Jefferson. Um, You could both lose, but, you know, that's nowhere near as fun as actually winning. So, I I love the strategic implications of this game, where you know what your opponent knows, and you're playing off of the options that your opponent has, and you're constantly just evaluating how you want to proceed. Um, More often than not, it seems like when we are taking cards, we take the free card, uh, but not always. Like, sometimes we pay a coin or two. I'm not saying I'm particularly good at this game, especially if I went against people who've played this game a lot more than three times, but it did seem like coins are very precious and spending these coins to protect your cards and to uh, activate some of the really powerful effects in front of you is definitely something to keep in mind. Um, And obviously, as you're playing this game, you uh, consistently have this agonizing decision of what card do you discard? Because so many of the powerful cards force you to discard a different card from your hand. And again, it takes an entire turn just to draw one of these cards. So (laughs) figuring out which card is best for you, which card you don't mind getting rid of? All of that is super important. Now there is a little bit of asymmetry in this game, which is uh, interesting. The Hamilton player actually does not play uh, pay the discard fee on diamond cards, and it seems like the Adam the Adam player Adams player doesn't have a uh, similar benefit to that, which is interesting. And I, I haven't actually seen Hamilton or Adams win more often than not, um, but. Um, Parsing that asymmetry and trying to figure out how all that works is is definitely interesting. I mean, obviously, that was done for a reason, and um, it's been leveraged to a certain extent. I think there's only three diamonds in the deck that actually have discard powers, so it's not a hugely powerful thing, but it is definitely, from a thematic perspective, interesting because I think diamonds are uh, political will, and, you know, the idea that Hamilton was a lot better at politics than Adams uh, definitely works its way uh, into the game, and I didn't mention it, but every one of these cards has flavor text and some art on it, and I don't know really anything about this time period. I mean, beyond what I was taught in, you know, elementary school or something like that. Uh, I have not seen the musical Hamilton, although I tweeted about this game at one point and somebody said, you should listen to the soundtrack of Hamilton in the background when you're playing this. And I imagine, I'm assuming Adams and Hamilton are main characters in in the show Hamilton. So I I bet a lot of this will make a lot more sense if I'd actually seen that. Uh, I'm not against seeing it. I just never really got around to it. But uh, either way, that is Reign of Witches. I mean, again, it is half of the games that are in this tiny jewel box. And considering I could also toss little tokens in there, this is two complete games. I don't see myself getting rid of this anytime. And also, uh, with this really nice uh, plastic box that it came in, I'm just tossing this in my game bag when I'm going pretty much anywhere so that I'm always uh, have an opportunity to play an interesting two player game. And um, actually, before I move on to the Toledo War, I'm going to take a quick look over here to the chat. Uh, Travis Hill is here, the designer of CardVale, says uh, Reign of Witches is a great game. Chris says this game rules, and uh, you felt the mind games in the play too. Yeah, like going back and forth, just trying to figure out What card are you going to play? Which card to get rid of? Um, And, oh, yes, that's true. Uh, Chris points out that Adams always goes first. And that is definitely a significant factor. Like, the game will not necessarily have the same number of turns. So, yeah, actually, that's something that I hadn't even considered. But that is definitely a big advantage in this game because um, you just buy a card and the last card comes out and then the game is over. And that's good for you if you're in a winning position. Uh, so, I think at this point, I'm now going to move into the fourth game, which is actually the other half of this little jewel case that I was talking about, and that is the Toledo War. Now, this game was published in 2019, and um, much like Reign of Witches, this was the free game that was tossed into every order of two or more during the Hollandales, Hollandaise, uh, um, uh, uh sale that happened in 2019. Um, now, I realistically... Didn't know anything about this game. I heard all these great things about Reign of Witches, and when you buy Reign of Witches now, you also get the Toledo War. So I figured I may as well read the rules to it once I got it and um, play it with a friend just to see what it's like. I I literally knew nothing about the Toledo War when I ordered this. And um, after reading the rules, I got pretty intrigued because this game uses a very... Abstracted uh, mechanic similar to Twilight Struggle, which is a very complicated game, but uh, let's let's talk about it in a little more detail here. Um, in this game, one person is playing as Michigan and the other person is playing as Ohio, and um, you are essentially fighting over, I believe, the Toledo Strip, and. In this game, you're actually going to deal out cards to players, and every card has a primary color. Essentially, it's going to be Michigan or Ohio, and on your turn, you are going to play a card, and if the card has matches your color, so if you are Michigan and you play a card that has the Michigan icon on it, then you can play that card as an event. Um, if you play a card that's not your color, then you can't do the event, and this is how it's kind of Twilight Struggle-ish. <laughs> I'm sure there are other cards that also use that mechanism. Now, when you play a card for the event, you just do what the event says, and you discard the card. But when you play it for not an event, you uh, just gain influence. And in the middle of the table, we have three different um, fighting areas, essentially. Uh, One is authority, one is belligerence, which uh, I think realistically means fighting, uh, and the other one is claim. And I think the idea here is, you know, who has the authority um, over this uh, Toledo Strip, who is willing to fight actually physically for the Strip, and who just makes the best claim for saying, you know, this— is ours. It's you know adjacent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, what you're going to do in this game is you're going to play through. I believe it's up to four rounds, and um, in each of these rounds, uh, one player is going to get three cards and the other player is going to get four, and it depends on this claim card. Whoever has the claim card flipped to their side is going to get four cards, and the other person will get three. Now, the person who has the claim card on their side will go first in each of these rounds, and again, you play a card to the discard pile to activate the event and do whatever it says, or you put that card down into a row. Now, if You have your color banner, like if you're blue and you play this card over here, it says claim in that banner, which means you must put that down for influence if you're not doing the event into the claim area. Same with belligerents, but many of them also just say any, A, B, or C, which means you can put them alongside any of these different tracks, and every single card has a red and a blue side. So if you draw a hand of three cards that have events for your opponent, well, you're just going to be, you know, flipping those over and using the other side for it. And that might feel bad, but of course, these events are good. And having them in your hand and you being able to dole them out means your opponent does not get access to those great cards. And there's not very many cards in this game. So if you have a bunch of events for you, well, you know, odds are good, I guess. Unfortunately, your opponent probably has a bunch of your events. But Either way, each player is going to play three cards, and again, during each of the rounds, one player has three cards, the other player has four. Now, at that point, one player will have one card left, and that card is going to be revealed. And if it has an event that matches the color of that uh, of the opponent, then that is going to be uh, performed. So what that means is, for example, uh, I'm playing Michigan, and I had the four cards, and my last card has an Ohio event on it. That means we actually perform the Ohio event. But if that last card is a Michigan event, which matches me, we just discard it. So, what that means is the player who has four cards instead of three has this extra stuff they have to crunch through as they are figuring out what their final card is going to be. And they want to make sure that that final card does not help their opponent. Um, If it's your opposing, uh, if it's the opponent's card, that might be fine. If the event doesn't actually change anything, like if it says, you know, discard all of your opponent's uh, influence on claim and there are no cards over there, well, then you might not really care. Uh, Now, the other thing is there are two mandatory events, and if the last card is a mandatory event, then you must play it as the event. And then you just check to see who has the most influence on each of these three different areas. Now, every one of these cards has a modifier on it. It might be plus zero, it might be plus one or plus two, and that helps out that side. So, for example, in Authority, if somebody has four influence plus two, then they have six, compared to another person who's coming in to try and fight for that, only has three, well then... It looks like that person is going to defend it if it matches up and if you're able to exceed it. um, So, for example, with claim, if the blue player has no influence over here and a claim is currently blue and you uh, go to. Oh, sorry. I'm I'm getting my my examples confused. But essentially, whoever is the biggest number of influence adjacent to these is able to either maintain the color or flip it over. And if at any point all three of these match your color, you win right there. Uh, so the game could technically just end uh, uh, last one round. In fact, I played this game three times in a row with my friend last Friday, and the second game has an asterisk because I misparsed my final card. I was the the player who had four, and I played it out. We read it, and we did what it said, and we're like, "Oh crap! That flipped over the other card, and my opponent just won right there after one round." So we're like, "Okay, well, let's play again." <laughs> so technically, the game can only last one round if you're dumb, <laughs> and I had definitely had a dumb moment right there. But more often than not, two out of these three will be owned by a player, and then that person gets one of these victory point tokens. So, again, this is part of the reason why you need to have these tokens. They don't come with the game, but, you know, you can fit some tokens in this box, and you need tokens for both of the games that come in that box. Uh, Now, what you do then is you deal out the next set of cards, and then at that point, there will be no cards left in the deck, and you leave these influence cards out here. So in the second round of the game, you actually already have some influence going, and then you play through it the way it was, and then after the second round of the game, you deal out... Uh, these points as long as nobody won, and then you clear off the influence, and then you bring in the Frostbitten Convention, which is a new mandatory card, which essentially ends the game and does a thing or two as well. Uh, so based off of when this Frostbitten connection, Convention is going to happen, the game might end in that third or that fourth round, and then the player who has the most of these victory points is going to be the winner. And this game... Totally took us by surprise. I played this again three times in a row with my friend Matt. Uh, We actually played Reign of Witches twice, and then we played Toledo War three times after that. And if I'm being honest, we were more excited about the Toledo War, and we enjoyed the Reign of Witches. I think I liked Reign of Witches a little bit more than my friend, Um, but my friend in particular was ecstatic about this game. Like, he just loved the way this worked, Um, and I really enjoyed it as well. I think uh, in this situation, he liked Toledo War a little bit more than me, but I was still really impressed. Again, I knew nothing about this game. I bought this package for Reign of Witches, which is the game that lots of people have been talking about, and I am (laughs) overjoyed to find out that I really like both of the games that come in this package. Uh, To a certain extent, they're very different games, and they kind of match different mentalities that you might have. Because again, in Reign of Witches, you know what your opponent has. There's these mind games. You saw the cards they took. You saw the card they play. Are they going to put a coin down onto it? You're not really sure. But in this game, you deal out random hands of cards, and you're trying to lay these cards down to perform events that help you out and to get influence that'll flip these cards over. But you have no idea what cards your opponent has in their hand. So it's almost like an inversion of the Reign of Witches mindset, where, okay, in Reign of Witches, you know everything. And it's a super tact- uh, super strategic game, uh, at least super strategic for a 23-card uh, 20-minute game. And then in Toledo War, it's a super tactical game as you are dealing with the cards that you have in your hand and trying to deal with the situations that present themselves. Based off what your opponent does, you're taking lots of risks in this game, putting a card down and hoping desperately they don't have one more card to play. And you know they have that one card in their hand they might be able to put down, but you know, what if it says authority and you're vying for claim, and they they can't put it onto the claim spot? In which case, you know, that's going to work out well for you. So, yeah, I really enjoy this game. This one's definitely, um, I think, a little bit simpler to teach overall uh, than Reign of Witches. There's there's a decent amount to Reign of Witches. Obviously, uh, the scoring conditions and how Jefferson might win, and every card is different in Reign of Witches, and every card is different in the Toledo War. But uh, many of the cards in Toledo War, you'll just end up playing obviously for the influence, and uh, yeah. Been super impressed by this game. I could see myself um, playing this one just as often as Reign of Witches, if I'm being honest. So again, I'm I'm very happy that I can fit it inside this little box here with these ten tokens. You need ten tokens for Reign of Witches, and it seems like ten tokens is pretty much always going to be enough for uh, playing the Toledo War. And um, I I don't see these going anywhere. I mean, as far as hard punching two player games that don't take that very long to play, um, I have a hard time coming up with better examples of that than these two games that already come in this tiny little package. Um, I'm not saying these are my favorite two-player games ever, but you know certainly for winding down at the end of a game night like we did last night where almost everybody left, but I wanted to play something else and so did one other person, but also situations where you're playing games while you're waiting somebody for other people to finish a game. You could knock out a couple of games of Toledo War, maybe play one of each of these, and uh, from my perspective, I know I will really enjoy that time. It's just a really dense amount of fun for the amount of time that you spend actually playing it. Uh, now, I will reiterate, I guess I'm talking about Toledo War, but but going back to Reign of Witches, like the rules teach in that one is probably twice as long as the rules teach for Toledo War because of the, some of the intricacies that go on there. So the first time you play Reign of Witches, you're probably going to spend, you know, Ten, maybe even fifteen minutes talking about it if your opponent isn 't really quite getting it 15 is an overstatement, probably ten minutes is more accurate, and then you 're going to play the game for like twenty twenty five minutes uh, to lead a war i think is 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 certainly more on the order of a five minute game because the structure of it is so simple, and of course, when you get that hand of cards, you need to read through them and you ha- you'll have three or four but um That's not a ton to consider. Uh, One thing I will say about the Toledo War is the fact that at the start of the game, one of the sides, I think it's Michigan, starts with the uh, claim. Uh, Don't don't quote me on that. (laughs) But one of the sides starts with claim pointing towards them, which means they're going to get the four cards compared to the three cards of the opposing side. And the claim card does have a plus two modifier on it. So in my experience, it seems like claim can be kind of hard to take over. And it seemed like for most of the games that we played while we were playing the game. It stayed on the side facing the person who kind of started with it. And the person who gets four cards has more to think about just straight up than the person who has three cards, because obviously they're trying to make sure that the final card they have in their hand is not going to mess with their plans versus the other person who has three cards. They're going to play all three of those cards. Um, Now, the four-card player does get to play the first card, but there's a lot to be said for being the last player to put a card down in this game because or in each of the rounds because, you know, you have the final say in how some of these things go. Um, so it, it's definitely interesting how one player has a larger cognitive load than the other, uh, but that can switch as the game is play, being played. And also, if you want to sit down to play this game a couple times, you can just have the other person go. Uh, that's actually what happened in our second almost non-game is we swapped the roles, but... I hadn't quite snapped at my brain into flipping the colors, and so I was processing the event with the wrong color. We played it out, and I realized I just missed parse it all and just throwing the game to my opponent. But uh, yeah, um, that is Toledo War. I'm super impressed with it. Um, Again, coming from nowhere, from not really hearing anything about it. And I think it's wonderful that this game is um, available with Reign of Witches. Like you get these two together. Uh, It's $20 right now. I I sound like a salesperson right now, but but I am really excited that this is an option. You know, this will fit into (laughs) any game bag. It'll be so easy to toss it in there. And the fact that it comes in this uh, little plastic case, I know it's not hard to come up with plastic cases, but the fact that it comes with that means I don't even have to worry about the cards getting scuffed up or whatnot. And I'm not a Sleever, but yeah, I'm not sure if Sleeves would fit in there. But either way, I'm not a Sleever, so I don't really care about that. <laughs> uh, all right, looking at the chat... Aaron says, is Reign of Witches still available and where? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I just uh, briefly mentioned that um, you could go to the Hollenspiel website and um, Reign of Witches plus the Toledo War is available. Um, I think it was $20 when I checked it. And, you know, the majority of the proceeds go to uh, the Morris Animal Foundation. So you have that on top of it. Uh, I actually put in a pretty big order through Hollenspiel. uh What was that? Um, I guess two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, where I I started the order because I wanted Reign of Witches, and obviously I got Toledo War along with it. And then I also picked up Meltwater and Supply Lines of the American Revolution, the Southern Strategy. Uh, And so I got all of these games in, and last Friday um, I played hooky uh, from my job. I I guess I could argue that playing games is kind of adjacent to my job, and a friend of mine took the, uh, had the day off already, so he came to my house and we played as many of these games as we could. Uh, so it was just a really fun day of Spiel gaming. Uh, and I think on that note, I'm going to start, uh, wrapping this up. And I do want to mention that in our Hollenspiel game day, we played the Field of the Cloth of Gold again. Uh, that was my fourth play of it and it went over so well. We had a blast. Uh, I taught it to my friend, uh, Matt, who uh, we played all of these games together and, um, just seeing his eyes widen when that game was over and he realized that even though he had more points than me and he had way more gold than me, then he actually lost. It was an amazing moment. So I I still, uh, I just have great things to say about the field of the cloth of gold. I can see myself playing that one more. I'm actually going to be filming a playthrough, a tutorial playthrough for that one um, later today or tomorrow. It won the Patreon poll for uh, July. So that one's, that's really cool uh, being able to showcase that one and um, trying to figure out how to, to show the, the mind games of it. Cause I'm going to be playing against myself might be kind of interesting, but uh, yeah. Uh, the other game that we did play uh, last Friday was supply lines of the American revolution, the Southern strategy. Uh, but that was essentially my first war game ever. And it was also essentially my friend's first war game ever. And even though I'd read the rules a couple times, we mostly played it to try and figure the game out. Uh, And we ended up playing it for like two, two and a half hours. And we got to the point where we actually decided to call it a draw because we saw all these other games (laughs) at the side of the table. We're like, we want to try those games as well. So we kind of figured out how to play the game, but it didn't really feel like a full play to a certain extent, because again, we spent so much of our time just parsing the rules and figuring out how it all worked. Um, so I'm not going to be talking about that one in a good games vlog until I'm able to play that one again. And I already, I think, have another game of that lined up with a different friend of mine who has played a few war games before. So I'm I'm curious to try that one out. But that's, not, that, that's the reason I'm not really talking about it here. I feel like um, that was almost a rules learning session versus an actual playing session of that one. Uh, yeah, I think the last thing to say in this wrap-up is I continue to play Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. I think I've played that game six or seven times now. It just keeps hitting the table. Uh, we're really enjoying it, especially now that most of the people I play with with know the game, and I think that's why it's getting played so much is because we're like, ah, let's just play Ares Expedition again, slap it down onto the table. So um, I've been having a lot of fun playing all of these games. I, You know, while I'm here, I'll say that last night I also played a game of City Builder uh, Ancient World, and I really enjoyed it, but um, I only try to talk about four games in these vlogs. I don't really want to go on to five or more, and I know that we're going to play this one again soon, so I will very likely talk about uh, City Builder's Ancient World in the next one of these Good Games vlogs, and by that point, I hope to have played it again to even uh, better, appreciate what's going on there. It's a really cool Thailand game, and I'm looking forward to talking about it more. Um, looking uh, over here at the chat, uh, Chris mentions that Dual Gauge and Reign of Witches have been your first ever Holland, uh, Holland Spiel experiences, and I'm totally enamored. Uh, and yeah, I, I get that. Uh, I think Dual Gauge was also the first Holland Spiel game that I picked up. Uh, the Field of the Cloth of Gold was the second if I remember correctly, and then obviously I put in a big order recently. Uh, I've just really enjoyed the um, strangeness of a lot of these games. Like, they just have some really cool mechanical ideas, some really cool settings, some really quirky things that happen, and I'm just enjoying delving into these. And it looks like I'm not alone. (laughs) It definitely seems like more and more people are mentioning them as time goes on because I think there's some really cool experiences that are uh, inside these games. Uh, So, yeah, I think that is going to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much to everyone who joined in live and to everyone who watches this afterward.